Welcome to the Catching Health Podcast. I'm Diane Atwood, your own personal health reporter. According to the National Eating Disorders Association, about 30 million Americans will struggle with an eating disorder at some point in their lives. My guest today is Dr. Patrice Lockhart. She's the medical director of New England Eating Disorders, or NEED, at Sweetser in Saco, Maine. NEED is the only comprehensive eating disorders treatment program in Maine. Dr. Lockhart is here to help us understand the risks and symptoms of eating disorders and how they can be treated. First of all, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today, Dr. Lockhart. Happy to. Um, Could we begin with an explanation of just what an eating disorder is? Um, Yes, and I'll try to be um, as brief as I can. There are three eating disorders that um, are recognized as specific entities that are treated typically um, anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder. Um, these have been detailed more specifically um, in a diagnostic manual that's used uh, throughout the world. Um, there are other uh, eating disorder or disordered eating patterns that uh, qualify as a less than healthy relationship with food, which might be compulsive overeating. Um, I would say uh, restricting certain types of foods uh, and eliminating others, um, which is a somewhat controversial thought as to what crosses the line into an eating disorder. But one thing that is really important to um understand is that eating disorders are both psychological and medical illnesses. So both components are very important. On the psychological side, there is a distortion of thinking about size, weight, and shape, and a person is often distressed by this. Um, It can increase anxiety and depression in a person, um, which is another hallmark of the uh, eating pattern going awry so that someone may not feel that they are acceptable or adequate or even worthy to live if they're not, say, exercising uh, at a compulsive level or getting rid of food that they've eaten by either purging by vomiting, uh, diet pill use, uh, laxatives or diuretics. Um, And the medical complications are really physiologic. Every organ system is affected by the dangers of an eating disorder. Um, Either purging by vomiting will affect the electrical system in the heart uh, by altering the electrolyte balances that make the heart beat regularly. There's also physical damage to the esophagus um, and to the uh, dental enamel especially the esophageal uh, problems. It's kind of like wearing away the inside of the esophagus with Drano because, of course, stomach acid is so damaging to surfaces. And the body's not meant to throw up unless it's getting rid of something that's uh, very toxic. So we see these um, components and need to address them from both both the psychological and the, the medical side. Um, so does it, is it something that can happen gradually? Is there usually an event 
that triggers it? Are you born with this? How does it, how does it happen? Those are very interesting questions. And, um, I would say there's not one straight answer to that. Um, there are components that are, uh, that can be genetic. We do see some family history of people with eating disorders and have an increased concern about um, family members who have not yet identified with an illness. Um, They can creep up on people, but they can also start with some uh, history of trauma that causes a person to seek out something that will alleviate pain. And then there's also a strong cultural component in in this uh, time, 21st century and late 20th century, the cultural ideal is uh, thinness, and it really doesn't address the consequences of being too thin. In the 20s and 30s, or 1920s and 30s, the cultural ideal was a more curvy and full figure because it was leaner times after the depression. Um, so people in advertising would look to gain weight fast, or there would be all sorts of advertisements of how to look more attractive and more curvy. Whereas now the attractiveness is, is kind of linked to the war on obesity, but it actually is being dissatisfied with the body. Um, and the ideal uh, being much more like the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. The concern is that actually being underweight is more physically dangerous than being overweight. I didn't know that. That's a hard um, cognitive dissonance to really understand uh, unless you dig a little bit deeper. But it's kind of along the lines of the world is flat versus the world being discovered to be round. So um, it's it's tricky uh, because this this global ideal of thinness, there there should be increased concern on both ends of the spectrum. So if a person is exceedingly overweight or exceedingly underweight, actually being on the low end of the spectrum is more dangerous and predicts premature death more than Uh, on the higher end of the spectrum. And the range of normal is much broader than we are led to believe. What do you mean by that? Well, so BMI has become kind of what people consider a a gold standard. Body body mass index? Body mass index for um, a predictor of health. Uh, It actually is meaningless. It was designed and uh, created by an astronomer in Belgium in the 1800s who was wanting to get an idea of what the uh, typical man was like. So he looked at the typical length of a man's arm. And this is, of course, a white male um, European descent, not women, not children. So length of arm, the age at which a typical man might marry, and the height and, rate, height and weight ratio of a typical man. So this was a, a made-up entity, really, to uh, do an anthropological study. Um, and it was picked up by a researcher in obesity in the early um, 1940s, uh, 
who thought, well, I want to see what, how, how the human body in a class study um, falls out. This is worded very badly, but um, wanted to study the, the trend of obesity at that time and if there was one. But he warned that this number, which he decided, oh, I'm going to use this number. It looks fairly simple. He said it's not meant for individual assessment. So it's not meant for someone to look at an individual and say, oh, you are this, so you are bad. and You are this or you are too much. It was, again, a class study um, approach, and the, the warning has not been heeded. It's actually been taken up by insurance companies as a gold standard and simplified even more so that the range of normal has narrowed. It narrowed overnight in the mid-'80s. It was deemed too complicated to have a separate body mass index scale for women and a separate one for children and a separate one for men, much less uh, uh, genetic heritage or, you know, families typical uh, size through the generations. So overnight, uh, millions of people became obese because the ranges were narrowed for what is normal BMI. Tom Brady is one of my favorite examples of uh, an obese male. He's considered obese on the BMI yep. scale? Wow. Yes. Yes. And those calculators are easily available. I've used them. I've put them into blog posts before. Yep. Yep. So and they're don't. really not based on anything. So, uh, I think that's one thing that I would like to educate the public more and more. And it's, uh, it's just so easy. You know, people don't want to think beyond that ease. And I understand that. But... Uh, it really misrepresents uh, the picture of health that people are looking for. So this may sound like a stupid question, but how do we know if we are at a healthy weight, a healthy size? I like to look at function. You know, if you are able to do your daily activities without excessive discomfort, there's not a problem. There is a movement in this uh, country called Health at Every Size, and it really relieves the pressure to be a certain size, but to focus on shortness of breath or, uh, you know, ability to get the dishes out of the dishwasher or function in your school sport uh, consistently so that there is not this focus on weight as an isolated measure. Um, many, many studies are now showing that weight in an isolated measure is not helpful at all. Physical activity as an isolated measure can predict an in improvement in health. So really, at any you know, someone whose uh, genetic profile is whatever descriptor you want to want to add to that, stocky, strong. Uh, Big boned, that's one. You know, yeah, well, that, yeah, <laughs> that, any of those euphemisms that you would want to use, if they can function at the level that they want to. The way to get to that is physical activity. The way to lower blood pressure is physical activity. And even in diabetic research, where there is a short-term correlation with uh, improvement in uh, diabetic um, numbers, that only lasts for six months with weight loss. Hmm. And I've so read about no matter. Sorry. Sorry. No matter, no matter what... Um, happens after that six-month period, if a person regains the weight that they lost or doesn't, those effects are not 
not consistent. So we have a short-term answer to a long-term problem, whereas the numbers and the studies that have people increasing their physical activity to a certain point are showing long-term effects. And what I was going to say is that as we age, too, there have been tons of studies showing how important physical activity is as we age. Our metabolisms change. Um, we lose muscle. We lose more than we'd like to think we lose. But yes. doing physical activity is really critical. Yes, it is. And it's so much m more important than a weight loss goal. So, again, function is the, is the way to go. So when, and happiness, you know. Oh yes. People, people who diet. Oh my gosh, it's hard work, and it's uh, it sets people up for dismay and displeasure at failure because the body that loses a significant amount of weight, ninety-eight percent of those diets rebound. And a lot of people so the best who try, they might do the yo-yo diets. Mm -hmm. And the yo-yo diets are actually the most uh, dangerous for the function of, of the body. Why? Well, because the body doesn't know what to do. And, and the effects of weight loss in a yo-yo diet are lose 20 pounds, gain 30. Wow. Lose 30, gain 40. So 98% of diets fail for people to maintain a low weight that they think that they should be at. Because that's really not not good for their physiology. Let's talk about some of those specific, more common eating disorders that you mentioned. Um, before I'm going to have you give us a description, but before I want to ask you about how we often hear about girls in high school as being the ones who are most apt to get caught up in an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? It still is most common. Even the patients that I treat in their 40s, 50s, and 60s have had experiences most often that dated back to their teen years. You know, it's when the body changes the most from pre-adolescence and then going through puberty. It's a very hard time for um, the human brain and body to kind of match up with goals. And so even if someone doesn't have an eating disorder when they're in their teenage years, the predictor is that they're probably not going to start after their mid to late 20s. Okay. And so people will say, yeah, I've had this for 40 years, but I've never addressed it. Or I kept it under control because I had children. They had different priorities rather than body shape and, and uh, weight. But it, it does uh, tend to start at a very impressionable age. And especially in first world countries, that's the truth. And in not, other countries that are, you know, have less accessibility to television and um, first world amenities, the age may be higher, uh, depending on when they were introduced to that way of life. But it can still happen. It can develop yes. later. Yes. And it's not just females. No, and we're finding more and more. I'm not really sure if it's always been. Uh, kind of a hidden population of males. Uh, it's less hidden now, and in some ways that's that's helpful because there's less stigma about talking about it for a, a gymnast or someone who's in the Army and they have these you know expectations for weight. Um, there are just a lot of pressures uh, that are not female um, to maintain a certain weight that, that people, and again, 
now we have insurance companies saying if your BMI is not this certain number, you have to get it down or we won't pay you that extra $500 for being in a BMI range. So we have an economic uh, driver for weight these days that does not discriminate uh, only towards women. That being said, it's still over 90% female um, that we see. Okay. And I think the, the pressures on uh, women are, are uh, more consistently strong than they are on men. Let's, I'm going to have you describe bulimia. Do you pronounce it bulimia or bulimia? Oh, I say bulimia, but, you know, I'm from southern Missouri, so <laughs> <laughs> it, can, it can really vary. Well, why don't we start with bulimia or bulimia and describe what the most common signs or symptoms are and how yep. it manifests itself? So bulimia nervosa, and that nervosa part is adding the psychological component um, of being dissatisfied or, or uh, feeling out of control. Um, has two parts. So a patient will eat in a binging pattern, which is more than a meal in a set, you know, a narrow period of time. So someone who's just eating all day long, snacking and picking at things, we wouldn't consider uh, that as a binging pattern. Um, it's more typically someone who restricts during the day to try to be good, and then the rubber band snaps and they just can't maintain that because their body needs fuel so that there will be a binging pattern that might be repetitive, you know, at different times in the day or the evening. But it's a lot of food and it's a distressing uh, process so that people feel a lot of shame and guilt about that process and feel helpless to stop it. So the other half of the bulimia nervosa is um, getting rid of that food in some way. Again, whether it is uh, purging by vomiting or laxative use, diabetic, I mean, diuretic use, and even compulsive exercise. I have heard, I've interviewed women mostly who have that, and I've often wondered if you're living with somebody, how you could hide running into the bathroom and throwing up. Mm-hmm. And yet it's a, it happens. It's amazing. Um, it is, it does happen. Um, sometimes I think, um, partners or, or spouses or parents or siblings or friends even, uh, get used to a pattern and they're not really tuned in to what's going on or they, they don't know what to say or do. Most people won't throw up in the presence of someone else unless they're very sick with a, a virus, for example, or a toxin, you know, food poisoning kind of thing. Um, so some, that really is a, a, a tool that we have for treating bulimia nervosa is having um, it come out of the secrecy of, of the private place in the bathroom. Uh, so if someone had, doesn't have that sort of appropriate shame about throwing up, it's very hard to treat because they don't have um, greater importance on a human relationship. The, the greater importance is getting rid of the food. And that's, that's very dangerous. So we often will um, make an expectation that this comes into um, the realm of getting rid of the secrecy of the illness. Um, but people can do a lot of things. People can throw up silently and, you know, deposit it in various places and have all sorts of uh, 
tricks of the trade. So how do you give up the secrecy? I mean, you mean by talking about it openly? Yes, and that doesn't mean, you know, put it out in uh, through a megaphone or you have to tell every person you know. It really means identify one or two people that you're willing to trust with something that you have been ashamed of. Mm-hmm. And and inserting a human again in in place of this relationship with uh, getting rid of food. Uh, in this way, the treatment is very personal and focuses on what a person's values are and what their um, relationships mean to them. Often the maternal instinct is one of the strongest tools that we draw upon. If someone has had this pattern of binging and purging and then they're starting a family or they have a two-year-old who's starting to notice that things, you know, are happening and copying, Mm -hmm. then the maternal instinct can really, uh, be a value that takes precedence. And, and it's a beautiful thing when a person can choose their child's welfare over their own distress. But so we, we work with that if we can. What's the risk of relapsing? Well, the risk of relapsing is always there. Um, once a pattern has been introduced and made into a pattern, it's, uh, it's going to require that other things are more important. And so that choice for some people is every day, and it's daunting. Um, And it's different from an addiction model where you can avoid alcohol or, you know, narcotics altogether, but you can't avoid food. You really need it to sustain life. And so it's a value choice in that way, plus training and coping skills and patterns that uh, support not doing something to get rid of the food. And support of other people who understand or who maybe have been there. Yep. Who, yes, very much so. It's why we treat in a group process um, at the beginning when things are, are really uh, entrenched is that we want to insert that pattern. So, you know, most people who come to the need program at first have several commonalities. One is they don't think they're sick enough to be there. Two, they've been isolating from their, the people in their lives, whether it's, well, I don't eat out in public anymore, or I only eat in my room, um, I don't eat certain things because they're not good for me, I leave a social setting immediately after eating. So there are lots of things that narrow their world. Mm-hmm. And some of those are subtle, and some of those are very, very blatant. Um it's hard to, with these illnesses, it's hard to recognize how much of an impact they have on others as well. Hmm. So that's another important thing to bring out of hiding. So let's move on to anorexia nervosa. Yep. Anorexia nervosa is really a restrictive pattern of eating that causes significant weight loss. Um, it doesn't require that a person be technically underweight to meet criteria for the diagnosis. So people who've decided, um, I just want to be more healthy, uh, may start on a regimen of restrictive eating and then add exercise and then become vegan and then narrow down the quantities. And it, that, that, in that way, things can um, kind of sneak up on people. Nobody really goes looking for an eating disorder, but it tends to uh, 
infect thinking is the way I like to think of it, that people really, they, they don't recognize when this uh, infection is in the brain and causing havoc. Uh, it may be a parent, you know, is very proud of their child. Maybe a physician has said, oh, you, you look great. You've lost 20 pounds without thinking, oh, wait a minute, what's, what else is going on? Is this being done um, in such a way that is safe, or is this actually someone who doesn't think they're good enough unless they are thinner, and they don't recognize that they're already too thin for health? So anorexia nervosa can have a purging pattern that is um, a part of it, but it is not necessarily the uh, driving force is, is to binge eat and th to purge. It's more the restrictive pattern and the, the thinking of uh, distorted thoughts about their own size. Like Plus a fear of, well, you know, someone will look in the mirror and they see something very different than another human will see. So they would consider themselves overweight when they are clearly not overweight and their bodies are not functioning. For example, for women, uh, if they don't have enough body fat to be menstruating, then that's cause for concern because it causes um, such severe damage to bone growth, especially in the teenage years. So it's not just affecting reproductive ability. And binge eating. I didn't realize until you said it that that was considered an eating disorder. Yes, and I'm very glad, you know, there are psychiatrists that have done a great deal of work over the decades with the DSM, and now we have the fifth version of the Diagnostic Manual, which um, much more clearly identified the, the uh, constellation of the specific eating disorders. It used to be eating disorder not otherwise specified, but now actually binge eating disorder has received the, the recognition that it deserves as a serious eating disorder. So it's really half of bulimia nervosa. People will binge, they'll have guilt about it, but they won't uh, do the other half of the dangerous um, behaviors of uh, purging by vomiting particularly. And where's the line drawn there? I mean, we've all gone to parties where you know, we've been faced with fabulous food and we binge. Yeah, well, you know, fabulous parties don't come along every day or every week. And that can be on the normal spectrum. And I don't even know that I would consider those binges. Okay. You know, some people that are in a restrictive pattern might have a, I might say, oh, it was Thanksgiving, so I had turkey and mashed potatoes and cranberries and consider that a binge, whereas hmm. actually the thinking that is distorted, not the amount of food. Okay. So, And I, I think you, you hit on something that really is our perception of being okay or not okay and the judgment about, um, you know, what makes us acceptable. And that is a very important part of treating all of the eating disorders. And it started with the treatment of binge eating disorder about not judging ourselves harshly, not judging the foods that we eat and legalizing all foods so that it's... Uh, more about compassion and acceptance than it is about doing it right or wrong. So we can have experiences like a lovely dinner party and not have not be fraught with the judgment that, that tends to be trained into us. Right. 
so this leads into what do we do if we know we've got a problem or if we suspect a problem? What's the right thing mm. to say and do? And then the other side of the coin, what should we not say or do? So as an individual, I think it's very brave to uh, bring it into the realm of words with others, not just let it bounce around in our heads, which, you know, can't really go anywhere, but to decide on a trusted person to talk to. I think I have a problem is, is incredibly helpful. Um, if you're the one that's observing someone that you're worried about, it's kind of like identifying, well, I'm, I'm worried about you. I don't know whether this is happening or it's just my perception, but I'm worried. I see you treating me differently. I see you isolating more. Um, I see your schoolwork going down, you know, just really kind of being objective rather than judgmental mm-hmm. and being curious with, with the person that you care about. Um, because uh, somebody that's been had an eating disorder sneak up on them is plenty judgmental already. Right. So they don't need it pointed out, you know, that there's something wrong with you. It's just concern, particularly about relationships that tends to help people um, be willing to listen to an outside concern. I think that probably you might see a lot of denial. Yes. Yes, we do. Denial and placing blame elsewhere, you know, which doesn't really help any more than blaming yourself for something. Um, providers, you know, therapists and physicians and nurse practitioners have um, an opportunity and I think an obligation to really ask questions that they might not otherwise ask, like what is your eating pattern in a typical week or, or and how do you feel about your body? And what are you doing to try to change it? So really keeping it on a, a fact-finding mission rather than a judgment mission mm-hmm. uh, can, can be helpful. How does a person usually get into treatment? Well, it can be a, any of the referrals from primary care uh, providers to school counselors, to parents, to the patient themselves, to a friend. Uh, I think once you start the chain of communication, it can um, pretty easily merge into what are we going to do next? And it might be, well, I just want to try this on my own first, which is reasonable for a very short time. If someone has the insight and the tools inherently, or they've had, you know, uh, some type of therapeutic training, they may be able to catch it and say, no, I'm not doing that. But, but if it's not showing change within a couple of weeks, that really is a sign that I'm going to do this myself is not enough. Mm-hmm. And so my, my saddest days are where when I assess a 13 or 14 year old and their parents come in and the parents say, I had no idea this was going on, or we just thought it would ease away and they're shocked to see the data of an objective observer observer who says no this has gone too far it can't go any further your child's heart rate is way too low uh you know it's 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 just a shame because if it had been uh at least 
had some curiosity about it six, eight, ten months before, it would be much easier to treat and much quicker to get back to, to normal life. So let's break that down a little bit. If, if you are able to intervene sooner rather than later, what would mm-hmm. your course of treatment be? Um, that again, depends. Uh, you know, in my world, I see the most severe cases and usually they have failed a lower level of care, which would be a team of a medical provider, a therapist, and initially a dietitian. If it's a younger person, the parents would see the dietitian because they, they know how to feed their kid. Um, but the dietitian is very helpful, <clears throat> excuse me, for getting a sense of what a normal eating pattern is, not so much having the person focus on calories, but to uh, normalize the, the intake requirements uh, with some help. So uh, treating without more than one provider, I think, is uh, maybe missing a lot of information. So again, a short trial with an outpatient therapist with a primary care uh, provider monitoring the medical safety, which would include vital signs and uh, weight fluctuations. And uh, sometimes the lab results are helpful. Not always, unfortunately. People can get a false sense of okayness if their labs are okay, but that's, that doesn't necessarily mean there's not a problem. So if there's a failure at that level of care, then in the state of Maine, the next thing to do would be to call us because we see the, the sickest patients. Um, so the NEED program is uh, designed for that. We start with a very high level of care, which is a full day program, uh, eight and a half hours a day, five days a week, usually three to six weeks long. Um, but coming for an assessment doesn't always mean that a person's going to need that highest level of care. It's really informative, and that can be an intervention in, in and of itself so that someone might come in and the parents are not quite as aware when they come in, and then they're quite aware <laughs> when they leave. And then they can try, you know, the if they haven't had outpatient treatment uh, up to that point, I would encourage them to start at that level so it's not more disruptive than it needs to be. But we often see people and we'll have an assessment and and can say, yeah, give give this a shot, but we're going to be in communication. And if it's not doing well in, in two to four weeks, then you need to come back. And are people hospitalized? I, I would assume they are, but if they participate in the need program? Um, it is not a hospital-based program now. And, and medical stabilization can actually be done in a hospital um, that's you know close to the patient's home. Uh, and that will be, these days, strictly medical stability. So it would be making sure the patient is nourished enough to get their heart rate back up, to keep their blood pressure at a stable level, um, to get rid of symptoms of dizziness or even fainting. Uh, to, to address whether there's blood in the vomit and make sure that the purging behavior stops um, with that 24-hour supervision and increasing their intake. Sometimes that needs a nasogastric tube if someone is just really, really stuck and needs to be nourished quickly. That would be a first step for medical stabilization. You've mentioned family. I would assume it's critical um, if somebody's still living at home that family be involved. 
Very much so. The hardest uh, age group to treat for an eating disorder is 18 to 25 because you have this legal independence, and so you really can fire your parents. Lots of times the relationship is such that a a 20-year-old at least will come home from college or live at home and be working and have some commitment to the family dynamic that the parents can uh, help and support. I have had a few, maybe, you know, I can count them on one hand, people that have been motivated enough um, to do it without support. If they don't have family support and they haven't identified friends that they uh, trust with these illnesses, they will just do it by sheer determination. And I just say hats off to them because it's... (laughs) It's such a huge dynamic uh, issue, and to have have to face that down alone is incredibly hard. So we try to 